started Romans. Romans 5.12. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Jeez. Scary, scary passage of the scriptures. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Paul writes that to the church that's gathering in Rome. All right, we're going to do, we're over these four or five weeks, friends, we're doing some foundational work as a church reimagining everything in light of a Jesus-centered perspective, okay? And uh, honestly, these are, in many ways, these are marks of a, of a new movement that's happening around our world, but in many other ways, it's really just a rediscovery of the heart of the Christian message that's always been there, that in many ways we've lost sight of as the years have gone by. And so last week we talked about a Jesus-shaped view of Scripture. And so uh, I realized um, that we hadn't actually given you kind of the five mark- markers that we're moving through. So, so here they are um, over the next few weeks. Last week we talked about a different way to read, that God always looks like Jesus and all Scripture is properly read through him. So that was the foundational work that we did last week. This week we're talking about a bigger gospel, that God's salvation includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life called to live the future kingdom now. Then we're going to talk about our power next week. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. It's a radically different way to think about it than the world thinks about it and that the church has often thought about it. A spirit-led purpose is our fourth marker of a Jesus-centered faith. The Holy Spirit empowers us to partner with God's work of reconciling all things. We're not just doing it on our own. And then, one, two, three, four, five. A new approach to disagreement we'll talk about in in a few weeks. The church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines we draw. But this week, we're going with the bigger gospel. God's salvation includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the future kingdom now. So we are wanting to explore how a Jesus, or to explore a Jesus-shaped view of how broad the good news is. And if you're not familiar, the word gospel simply means good news. So we're going to talk about how broad the good news actually is. Because in many ways, when we think about what the gospel is, there's a very, very marked understanding of exactly what that is. And here's, and here's what it is. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. A lot of beauty, a lot of truth in that statement. Also, a lot left unsaid if you look at the scriptures and the story of Jesus. So, that's what we are going to do this week. The gospel is so much less individualistic than we often assume. This is an important conversation because we are the most connected and the most lonely generation in the history of the world. Think about that. The most connected And the most lonely generation, both of those things are things that can actually be measured. And we fit both of them. How can this be, right? People are not moving toward each other right now in almost any way, but away from each other. And the assumptions about life are often pushing that narrative as well, right? Um, Life exists for my benefit with this extreme self-focus. Right? And then our theology begins to reflect this because here's what happens. Whatever cultural values we have, that generation's theology will always begin to reflect whatever the cultural values we have are, unless we keep our eyes centered on Jesus. And then we 
we challenge those things again. And so, um, you know, John, John 3.16 reads famously, For God so loved the world that Jesus came. But we also, but we often like translate that really narrowly, right? God, God so loved me that Jesus came to die for me. But the word world is the word cosmos in Greek that John uses there. For God so loved all of the created everything that he sent Jesus. And we often really limit that. It's even beyond humanity. There's a different word that, that would be used for God loved all the people of the world. That's not even what John writes. For God loved the whole cosmos, all that has ever been created, so much that he sent Jesus to bring about something brand new. So, so that's, that's kind of the, the story, all right? If, when, when we do the Jesus came to die for me, then we begin with a gospel of privilege that says that, that kind of I'm, I'm what God is all about, all right? Um, Jesus is on my side to protect me, to bless me. We talked about that a little bit last week. But the whole story of the gospel is not a gospel of privilege, but a gospel of participation. God calls me into a partnership to build a world now that'll echo into eternity, to rescue me and set me free from the powers that would keep me focused on myself and instead bring me into love in the most full way. Um, To be blessed by God indeed, but blessed for the sake of other people. Um, so the problem is that we are, we're so like, used to seeing our faith through this individualistic lens that we don't even realize that this is always what the message was. So that's why we're calling this whole conversation during this month a rediscovery. Uh, when we're immersed in this super individualistic mindset, we read everything through that mindset and our, our English language doesn't help. Wouldn't you agree? Thank you. There it is. Yes. So when I say that, when I say that, we have a bit of a problem with the English language, and that is that when I say you, you don't know if I'm talking to you, Brian, or if I'm talking to you, church, right? The husband says to his spouse, I love you. And a rock star says to a crowd, are you ready to rock? Those are the exact same words, but they have very different meanings and very different contexts, right? And so especially up here in the north, or at least in Delaware, we don't have this language that can be robust like they do in the south or like they do in the rural areas of Pennsylvania where I grew up where they say, use, use, use coming over for dinner tonight, you know? And down south, it's y'all, right? So we have, we, ha- we have ways of distinguishing that. Thankfully, so does Greek. All right, so let's talk about a couple things because... Because we have actually two words in the Greek language that mean you, su or humis, all right? Su, and oh, Spanish is wonderful too, estetis, right? We've got this, this language where we can, we can see if we're talking to a group of people or if we're talking to one person individually. So, in the Greek, it's a lot easier to tell. Unfortunately, most of us read the Bible in English, yeah? Or Spanish. And actually... I need to talk to those of you that are Spanish first language because I would like to know how the translations do on some of the passages that we're about to look at. But let's have a pop quiz. All right. We tend to naturally emphasize the individual understanding even when we don't realize it. So pop quiz. Let's look at some verses. Philippians 1.6. Paul is writing, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you think it is Sue, or do you think it is humis, which is the plural? What do we think? Yeah, we got the wiggle. 
Humis. All right, what's next? All right, 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is, this is one. Think, I don't want you just to answer the question. I want you to think about how you've heard these presented. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What do we think? Sue or Humis? The wiggle. Humis. How about this? And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. You or y'all? You see a trend here, right? Like you're starting, to, you're starting to, to see this. I could do this all day. All right. The radical individualism of our culture and the isolated ego, it has scarred our imaginations so that it never occurs to us that the Bible speaks primarily toward a group and a community rather than just the individual. And this is super important for a lot of reasons. Number one, it helps us understand how we view the church, which is really what we're talking about today. But it also protects us from toxic paralysis of the commands. Case study. Let's take the example of Jesus' command not to worry from the Sermon on the Mount. When aimed at individuals, you should not have any worry in your life. We find this command almost impossible to obey. As isolated individuals that are kind of like trying to make it through this capitalistic and achievement-obsessed world where your life situation depends completely upon your performance, how do you not worry all the time? But when Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about food and clothing and the basic necessities of life, if you hear that through the lens of this community, then it helps you to be able to release worry, because guess what? If one of you doesn't have food or clothing, we got you. If one of you doesn't have shelter, we got you. If one of you loses a job, we got you. This is the church. This is what we are called to do. So when you hear do not worry, as a community, God will continue to give us what we need. If we only send that through an individual lens where we say, I got to be good enough. I can't let worry seep in. But as soon as we understand that this is God's reminder and encouragement, I am with you all. Don't let worry take over as you live out this mission together then it changes the texture of some of these things and it opens the door for new growth and for new peace, all right? And so we can see it in like Acts 2 and Acts 4 when the church is sharing things in common and, and not focused on ownership or individualism. All of a sudden, we see this opportunity that is this beautiful, beautiful, beloved community growing and there is enough. So Jesus says, instead of worrying about those things, seek the kingdom together, become the people of God and all these things will be added to us. Jesus' focus is on we rather than me. Let this excellent visual help you. Me. We. But oh no, in the community it looks like someone fell over. That's okay. We will work together. Listen. Like... I don't mean to toot my own horn, but 19 years of teaching has led to those four slides. That is the best work I've ever done. So I, you know how seriously I take graphics and animation in my teaching slides. Uh, 
But there is this idea, right, that, that the gospel calls us to learn to be close enough to one another that when we fall, we can be picked up. And to not see ourselves through such an individualistic lens that the pressure is always on us, but instead the calling and the invitation is to lock arms and begin to do something beautiful in the world, knowing that God has done and is doing something beautiful in us. Uh, and, and when you see this, it's, it's fascinating. There's all sorts of hints through the scriptures. And often, because of an individualistic world, we tend to, see, we tend to miss a lot of things. This is just kind of a little aside, but Romans 8.28 in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, okay? Um, that's a very, <laughs> we're not going to do a study on that passage and how it's been twisted and turned, um, because often that's turned into, no matter what's happening, God is doing that, and it's for your good. So be thankful for the cancer. It's not the way God's heart ever has been or is. But here's the interesting thing. It sounds still like we can look at this and say, God is working for good for me in everything, all, all, of us, all of us who are the in crowd of God's people. But check this out. The Greek language is completely open-ended that you could also interpret. This is the NIV, by the way. This isn't like some crazy, like, off-brand generic translation. Because there are some of them out there. Or, or that, that you could read this exact same phrase in Greek. Or that in all things God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. Do you hear that? One of the most famous verses could easily be translated as, in all things, we know that God in all things works with those who love him to bring about what is good. So instead of, instead of a, a, a gospel of privilege, and you don't have to, if you hold this translation, it's not only a gospel of privilege, but it can go there. But we move to this idea and reminder that it's a gospel of partnership. God wanting to work with people to bring about beauty in the world, not just protect and love his own people, right? It, it's, it's from the beginning. God is committed to ongoing partnership with a people, and something special happens when we start to believe that, and when we move away from the self and the me and move toward the we, we begin to see that our identity and our gifts are all intended to join together into this beautiful wholeness instead of parts. Um, you are not Jesus. Neither am I. Not by a long shot. However, mysteriously and supernaturally, together we actually are the body of Christ. It's how God's made this thing to work. Uh, there's this passage in Ephesians 4, and I love it. We're not going to get into it too deeply because we're actually going to do a life seminar in a week and a half, I think, sometime in the 20s. Um, of January. I think it's the Tuesday night in the 20s of January. So we're going to do a life seminar that explores the way God has gifted us and how they're intended to work together. And it's really fun. So I invite you to come. But Paul's writing and he says, listen, to each one of us, to all of the people in the church, grace has been given. And then he says later, you know, there's apostles, there's prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he says, all of these are working together so that the body of Christ might be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Son of and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and here we go, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the early church understood, listen, all of you have been given different gifts, but when those are used together, you actually become the fullness of Christ in the world. Terrifying. 
mysterious, but true. And do you know it, what it reminded me of? My, my, uh, my PowerPoint game is on point today. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, he's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified. Do you remember that, any of you? Captain Planet, he's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. Oh, man. But the whole idea behind this show that some of us grew up with, right, was that there were all these different elements, and, it was, and, and, you, and, and these people represented and held these different elements, but it was only when the elements were combined that there was a different and fresh power that emerged. And this is the language that we are given for the church, is that you all have individual gifts, and you can use them very well, but when they are used in relationship and conjunction with one another, the, the Spirit of Christ emerges in fullness. It's amazing. It's really exciting. So it's beautiful. So, so there's so many opportunities for us to grow in this. And, and we, we've got to take it seriously. Because we, we sometimes see that the body of Christ or the understanding of the church, and I understand how this might um, press a wound. So I want to walk carefully. But this is why the body of Christ is so crucial. I'm not saying that because I'm a career pastor that wants you to be a part of our church. Although I would love for you to be a part of our church fully. But it's because there is something that happens in our faith, in us, and in the world around us when truly we are understanding that we are parts of a whole and it is intended to be as a community that God reveals God's self to the world. All right? Um, Does this mean, friends... That there is no personal element to our life and faith in Christ. I'm just going to hit this for a moment, just so nobody can accuse us of, of teaching anything others. Of course not, okay? Um, we don't throw out our personal relationship with Jesus. It is there, and it is absolutely crucial. There have been generations over the course of Christian history that have thrown that out. And believe me, it did not work out well for them. There was a lack of integrity during certain seasons of the historic church, because there was no personal connection to God that was at the core of faith, the problem is that instead of it being a component of our faith, it all too quickly becomes the end-all and be-all of our faith. My own relationship with Jesus. And that flies in the face of every page of the New Testament and the Gospels, which lead us to a communal understanding of God's unfolding kingdom. So even in those internal moments, the personal elements, like when Jesus in, in uh, John 14, he says, uh, those, those who love me, my father and I, we will come and make our home in, in them, right? That sounds really like very personal, right? If you love Jesus, Jesus comes into your heart, right? That's the story that we use, which is not wrong, but I like us moving into the heart of Jesus because we turn Jesus into something very small when Jesus is in our hearts. Um, but we join in with Jesus. But here's the thing. When Jesus says that, he says, and we will come and make our home. So even, even the personal story is Jesus inviting us into the triune relationship with God. It's Jesus inviting us into the sacred community of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So even the individual parts of our faith are actually, according to God, a movement toward community. This is, this is just what's, what's beautiful and radical kind of about it all. It's, it's intended 
to be communal. So it makes sense that core to those good news, that good news is that we're invited into a shared experience with other people then, right? Um, and we see this throughout the whole scripture. It's not just post-Jesus. Um, God's original covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 was that Abraham's descendants, so he calls Abraham from his home, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation that is so problematic in our heads because of what nation means today. So, let's change our translation. I will make you into a great family, great meaning large, into a large family, Abraham, so that your family is going to be like bigger than all the stars in the sky. And guess what? Your family, through your family, all of the families of the world are going to be blessed and cared for. So the original message, even of God to Abraham, was literally, literally, that the family is the answer to the world's problems. I'm not talking about the nuclear family, but I'm talking about a family of connected relationships, not disassociated individuals that all happen to be Eagles fans. Right? Because this is how we like view community these days, right? Like, I find my identity there. Like, okay, great. But like, and then like, where's the depth of the relationship that keeps you committed when the going gets hard? I mean, we're kind of asking ourselves that at this exact point. So, <laughs> but, but when there's disagreements in these little, in these small identity pieces, when there's disagreements, we just throw them away. But not, not in family. And, and I say that I do know that within our families, there's plenty of brokenness, right? And we acknowledge that. But family, in its most beautiful form, is committed and selfless. And so that's what the calling of the church is actually supposed to be. Um, A family is how God wants to work. And so when Jesus came, he created a renewed and enlarged understanding of family. Bigger than people expected to express God's kingdom. All right. So the theoretical was that. What does the scripture teach us about God's purposes? That we are created for community with God and others as a central point of God's redemption plan. Okay? We are created for life together as a central point of God's redemption plan. The problem, when we get to the practical, is that community sucks. Sometimes. So the problem with this amazing vision that we get in the scriptures is that community is super hard if you go beneath the surface. Because what community requires is that you don't always get your way, that you have to make space for people who are different than you. Oh, here we go. I'm going to pull them out again. And that you have to embrace vulnerability if you actually entrust yourself to others. So community is super difficult. So we often bail for a smaller gospel, a more me and God approach. Because it's hard to say, when I'm in community, it means I don't always get my way. It means that I might actually find myself in spaces that if I had my own choice, I might not include those people. But real community means that I do. I learn to walk alongside people who might look at the world very differently than me who might not be my easiest natural person to spend time with. And by the way, all of us have totally different people who are the easiest natural people to spend time with, right? So if you're like, (laughs) what? I saw a meme the other day that was like, that feeling you get when the pastor preaches about loving difficult people and everyone greets you after the service. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody here when I say community is hard. 
I'm trying to suggest that for all of us to be this people and to maintain an inclusive attitude that welcomes people and that says that we are all coming from different walks of life and our center is Jesus, but we might have different ways of understanding any variety of things, that this is the only way to do it is to understand that it's the body of Christ and the spirit and the head that is Jesus that holds the body together. And it's worth it. It's worth it because when you walk together in these moments, guess what? Look at those three, look at those three little statements. Looks an awful lot like discipleship, doesn't it? Looks an awful lot like the calling of Jesus when Jesus teaches us how to live, right? Um, looks a whole lot like what it means to experience salvation, We have totally truncated that word to something very small. In Philippians 2.12, when Paul says to the church, you might might have heard this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Some of you grow up familiar with that passage? Yeah. That's right at the end of how he is talking to the church about laying their lives down for one another and about how Jesus, even as the Son of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. You know that passage? It's right after that. So he says, work out your salvation, friends, with fear and trembling, which means understanding that it's hard and holy work. That's what that means. It doesn't mean being afraid of God. If you just read the rest of the New Testament, Um, we won't get into it. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling says, take this seriously, your relationships with one another. Be in right relationship. Be a reconciled person with other people. Work out your salvation, friends. That, that's, that's the language. So to be in, to, to journey, if you want to talk about being saved, it's not just my, my, me and Jesus. It's, it's moving into a reconciled community that rescues us from the stifling and dead, deadening power of isolation and selfishness. And so there's all of this beauty that comes, all right, saying this is important This is a part of living in God's, and and it's not just for the present. It's a part of living toward God's future right now. When we learn to live in community as the body of Christ, it gives us a glimpse into what will be the ultimate reality one day. The future of God is a communal vision, so it should impact how we live now. Learning to live as eternal siblings in God's renewed world. Can we get, like, weird for a minute? Okay, thanks. Nobody said yes. Uh, All right. So let's get weird with theology here. So in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you. It's right after he says, my father's house has many rooms, which I think is really interesting because we've turned that into many mansions, which is a mm, bad translation. It just is. so, so, So Jesus gives this image of a big, great big house. Great big house. Don't worry, you still get your own room. You know, go do the work trip, right, where you find out that you're paired up at the hotel with someone, and you're like, oh, Lord, <sighs> couldn't you spring for solo hotel rooms? Um, there's many rooms, so don't worry about that, but it's one house. So, so Jesus says, listen, I am going to leave and to prepare a place for you, okay? He says in John 14, uh, 2 and 3, that language is wedding language. So here's what would happen in a Jewish in a Jewish betrothal, all right? Um, The groom's family, (laughs) more or less, would 
pick out a bride, <laughs> all right, um, and say, here's the woman we want our child to marry, our son to marry. And they would send, send him out to move toward the proposal. So what he would do first is he would go to the family of the bride and he would pay bride price. Uh, um, what's it called? Dowry. dowry, thanks. Yeah, so um, he'd pay a dowry, whatever that meant, cattle, grain, money, whatever that was to say, I am committed to making your daughter my wife. After that, he would go to the, the woman and he would present her with a glass, a goblet of wine. And that would be the invitation. If she drank the wine, it meant that she was accepting the invitation. All right? If not, I do not know if there was a return policy on the dowry or not. <laughs> um, but anyways, once that happened, if she drank the wine, yes, I will marry you. The next thing he would say is, I am going to go prepare a place for you. Okay? I'm going to go back to my father's house, and I'm either going to build an addition, which is often what happened, carve out a room, it was tight living, or maybe if they had land, had a little more wealth, there was enough space or the skill, I'm going to build my own place, always beside mom and dad, though. That's just how it worked. All right? So I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then they leave, and, and the, and the um, groom leaves and prepares a place, and the bride's role is then to prepare herself for the wedding, right? To start to gather the right clothing, to start to, to, to prepare to, to, be, to have a new identity, all this kind of stuff. So Jesus says to his disciples, I know it's weird. You don't, I'm, I'm asking you, don't think about it in a romantic way, okay? But Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, all right? So that one day when I come back, we're going to dwell together in unity, one family, Okay, so he says that to them. He says, I'm committed to you. And he says it to y'all, so it doesn't get weird. All right, he's not proposing to anybody. He's proposing to the community of disciples. I know, it's weird. I said, we're going to get weird. It's, it gets weirder. So that's what happens. Then, let's fast forward to the final book of the scriptures, book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, all right, um, we have, oh, Okay, shoot, I did have this up here. Okay, all right. I go prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back so that you can be with me. We can be together. Revelation, there's this image that happens. And the book of Revelation, we did a whole message series on it. Hardest thing I've ever done. I cried when it was done because it was so much work to try to retool everything. I just got home and I just like, just burst out bawling after five weeks of teaching through Revelation. It's so beautiful, but oh my gosh, do you have to understand Jewish culture. But anyways, the book of Revelation is this book that one day, it's a vision, that one day all will be made right, and that God will restore and redeem everything with a renewed heavens and earth. And there's this imagery of a wedding between the Lamb, which is Christ, and the people of God, which is the bride of Christ, okay? So that's the imagery that we get. And that the language is, let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. It was given to her clo to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So here's the deal. Her preparation was supposed to be to get wedding clothes, right? Because that's every culture across everything, wedding clothes matter right? What you wear matters. It's one of the first things that people notice when they go to a wedding. What the bride is wearing, right? Oh, you look beautiful. What a nice dress. Um, 
I don't get it that much, but it's, I know it's important to people. So anyways, and what was the dress in this weird, crazy, odd reality? The dress is the fine linen, is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, in an individualistic mindset, we like to say, okay, so the bride is dressed in all of these good deeds. You know, all the times that God's people didn't sin. You know, great. Except, hold on. The vision of what righteous means is right relatedness in the scriptures. All right? So, so the, one of the Hebrew scholars that I, I love working with, he says, listen, if you really want the direct translation, it would be that the dress that the bride wears is the rightly related relationships of the people of God. So one day, when all things are set right and God and people are truly one in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, the marks of the body of Christ will be their right relationships with one another and with the world. That will be the thing that they have been preparing for all of life's history. So this is why the vision of God and of God's kingdom that Paul shares in like Galatians 3.28 is so important. God's kingdom is where all the separations of the world are brought together in right relationship. Greek and Jew male and female, um, slave and free, all of the distinctions and the injustices that exist where relationships were not right will be made right finally in God's kingdom. This is a glimpse of what the body of Christ is supposed to be, right? So we have nothing to offer our world if our tribalism is just a Christian version of the same world's tribalism. We're not making clothes that are appropriate for the wedding, we're not preparing ourselves in those ways, right? So, so Paul, when he's writing about these things, he said, Jesus didn't just die for your sins, he died for your divisions. He died to help get rid of the animosity, to take on the things that we, the, the, the sin of division, where we pull each other apart instead of learning to love sacrificially. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Martin Luther King Day um, is tomorrow. And so as we think about that, I think it's really important for us to be aware of the fact that Dr. King believed that beloved community was as central to the work of justice as anything. He said resistance and nonviolence are not in themselves good enough. There's another element that must be present in our struggle that then makes our resistance and nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Our ultimate end must be the creation of beloved community. When I'm commanded to love, I'm commanded to restore community, to resist injustice, and to meet the needs of my brothers. There is such challenge and beauty. When we learn to practice community, we find that we are always, ourselves, also moving toward justice. Um, Shane Claiborne, uh, activist, Christian leader, writer in Philadelphia, says that poverty won't end when the rich give money to the poor. Poverty will end when the rich meet the poor, when they move into relationship. This is what will transform. This is what will change the, the, the world, the unequal and unjust world that we have, is restored relationships, right relatedness. Um, therefore, our relationships, even here, are so important. We need each other. We need challenge to be living in the way of love and reconcili in, in reconciliation, to be preparing our clothes <laughs> for the celebration one day, right? I know that's weird, mystical, all that stuff. Um, but don't miss the imagery of it. The church community is where we kind of learn to practice the vision that we get one day 
of being known by our right relatedness with one another, by our reconciled relationships. Um, it's where we learn to practice it in the midst of messiness, right? And it's okay that it's imperfect, and it's okay that it's hard. I encourage you, do not give up. The beautiful reality to which we are being transformed happens in the midst of the mess that we are actually in today, right? The beautiful vision of the future happens right in the midst of our broken realities where sometimes it's just hard to get along, sometimes we've got baggage from past experiences, right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote that I'm sure a number of you are going to be familiar with, and um, what he says is, those who love their dream of, com of Christian community, their vision of it, more than they love the actual community, are going to destroy it. So if you say, oh, the church is supposed to be this, this beautiful image where everybody just gets along so well and it's so wonderful, and I know you feel that way about life path, you know, completely. Um, but, but like, it's just this, this amazing, where everybody's just amazing and nobody struggles and we're all just so fine and forgiving and nobody ever screws up. If that's the only vision that you can have, you will actually destroy our ability to be a truly loving and reconciled church. Because you're not giving space for the realities of imperfection and your own humanness. You know, if you thought, you're, if you thought the church was perfect, it changed the moment you walked in and it changed the moment we started it, right? Because it's got people. It's got humans. So, so even if your intentions might be honest, we have to love the church that God has given us and learn this instead of just thinking that the only thing I can be excited about is this vision of perfection. It's the same with marriage and family relationships and children and everything else. It's the way it works, you know? Tell me one person who had the same view of marriage before they entered marriage that they did after 20 years. It's even more robust and beautiful in some ways, but it's way harder and way different than you thought it was going to be, right? Just like incredible romance every night, all the rest of your life, candlelit dinners, right? Come on. That's not, that's not real, and that's not how God transforms us. Same thing with Christian community. All right. So, it's okay to acknowledge that your dream of community might be an illusion sometimes, but when you release that and learn to love, beautiful things emerge. So, I don't know what the step might need to be for you. Um, maybe it's not being afraid to love and to listen to those who are different from you. Just give them space and listen and not either try to fix or combat in your conversations, but just listen and learn and love. Maybe it's choosing to lean into relationships when things get difficult instead of withdrawing, which is a temptation. Maybe it's, it's the challenge of finding the balance to learn ways of relating to people that work with your unique personality and your life situation, but also releasing your ego and your comfort levels because part of a real community means that you're stretched. So like, your personality is not going to be the same, Bill, as mine, right? But we might both have to learn how to give a little of that in order to enter into community. So it's not just like, well, I just don't like spending time with people. I'm an introvert. Or I'm great at this because I'm an extrovert. Like, you got to give up on both sides. You got to learn how to give up some things as well as respect the way that you've been made. Um, and maybe, maybe what you need to do is very simply see yourself as fully a part of the body of Christ, 
<laughs> instead of like on the outside looking in. Like you are the church. You are the church. And so maybe owning that and saying, I'm a part of God's unfolding vision for the world. It's beautiful. It feels laughable sometimes. I feel you. It does feel laughable sometimes, but it's true. Um, and maybe it's just simply discovering how can you join in some compassion work alongside other people. So God be with us as we embrace that shared identity. Amen? All right. Lord, uh, we need you as the song goes. Oh God, how we need you. Uh, but I thank you that we aren't intended to do life alone. I pray that you would help us see how beautiful and challenging and central living life alongside other people is to your kingdom. Amen.